Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts. So if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster.com. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Business of Marketing podcast where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge. Welcome to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge, and I'm excited to be into the second season of the podcast. This season, we'll be having conversations with some of the most influential and thought-provoking minds in marketing and business. Today's guest is a sought-after consultant, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and one of the world's most recognized experts in digital content strategy and marketing. He's the author of three best-selling books, and for more than 10 years, he and his firm, The Content Advisory, have worked with more than 500 companies, including 15 of the Fortune 100. He's provided strategic marketing advice and counsel for global brands such as Facebook, Salesforce, NASA, CVS Health, Hewlett Packard, Microsoft, and the list goes on. I enjoy talking with him and learning from this man, and I'm sure you will too. So welcome to the podcast, Robert Rose. Oh, well, you're very kind. I mean, I heard you say that you have bright minds and provocative people on here. I don't know what the heck I'm doing here, but uh, I'm, you qualify, I'm just glad man. for the invitation, my friend. It's, it's, uh, it's great to see you. You too. You too. You absolutely qualify. So, you know, and I'll tell you, you know, I met you, um, I was introduced to you first when I saw you on stage at uh, Content Marketing World. And for our listeners who don't know, this is a huge conference with thousands of marketers. They come together to talk about content marketing. So word has it, you're in the room where it happened. This word content marketing. Can you give us some backstory on, you know, how and when this term content marketing became a thing? Well, you know, it's been a thing forever. Right. I mean, it's been a thing for as long as we've been doing this thing called marketing. And in fact, in the, you know, in, in any of the three books I've written, I've hopefully made that point, you know, abundantly clear is that we didn't invent the thing. We may have given it a name. Um, and that all credit goes to a guy by the name of Joe Polizzi, who is, of course, um, my podcast co-host on on the podcast that I do. And, and then also, a, a, you know, one of my best friends for the last decade. And he, you know, he came out of the publishing world and, uh, you know, in those days, call this, you know, late 2007, late 2008, we were calling it custom publishing, we were calling it advertorial, we were calling it all kinds of things. But the idea was creating valuable, customized content for our audiences that had value, that had value beyond our brand or our product or what it is that we sold. And so that process has been around and, and Joe really in, he started with a book called Get Content, Get Customers, which is how I came to know of him because I, at that point I was a CMO of a software company here in Los Angeles. And he and I met in 2008 actually after he had really come out with this idea and he called it, called it content marketing um, and started his blog and really started driving and evangelizing the process. And he and I joined very quickly forces in 2009 as Content Marketing Institute was getting its legs underneath it. 
And we just started evangelizing the process. And the name, I mean, much to the chagrin, I think, of many people out there who still want to call it brand journalism or, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, <laughs> the name content marketing has really stuck, um, especially with larger businesses, more matrixed, siloed, global, big industry businesses. The, the, the idea has really stuck and, 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 and stuck around. And ultimately, when Joe and I talk about this, you know, we we talk about the ideas. We, we don't really care ultimately what it's called. It is mm -hmm. the process. It is the approach that's most important. And ultimately, I think it'll probably go away. It'll probably be just become marketing right at the end of the day. And mm. a part of what it is we do is our integrated marketing and communications. I want to dig into two two parts of what you said there. The first one you know, it started out as somewhat content journalism, but now it's yeah. evolved to many more kinds of content, right? It has indeed. You know, I mean, everything from, you know, on the B2B side, it's probably mostly closely associated with thought leadership, right? Expressing and delivering so, some level of thought leadership to the constituencies that you serve as a business to business, um, you know, organization. And in B2C, uh, you know, consumer side businesses, it's almost always usually associated with some form of entertainment, right? Mm -hmm. So on the classic B2C side, you might have a company like Red Bull, or you might have a company like Lego. And, you know, it's been said that Lego really is just a media company that, you know, happens to also manufacture plastic bricks. They have really driven their uh, adoption of their toy with the idea of creating everything from magazines to feature films to online platforms to apps and all of this kind of content to deliver fun and interesting things to audiences. And same with Red Bull with their creation of, you know, events um, and magazines and documentary films and throwing guys out of spaceships and all of that sort of thing. It's all around creating content that inspires people. And they got their start, of course, in 20, I think it was 2004, by creating racing sheets, right? So they were sponsoring, like many B2C companies do, they were sponsoring Formula One racing. And they got their start by saying, hey, listen, we can not only deliver the race results at the end of this race, but we can deliver an analysis and deliver a bit of a, you know, a magazine at the tail end of it. And so they quite literally dragged printing presses down to the Formula One racing uh, venues where they were sponsoring and would print up real-time magazines as the races concluded, and they would hand those out to spectators as they were exiting, which became themselves collector's items and, of course, were fun because they had the, you know, the information there. And in B2B, it was really about how do we use white papers or blogs or webinars or events to actually drive our thought leadership. So it's really expanded beyond the idea of just becoming a brand journalist, and it's really into this idea of how do we perform and act like a media operation to deliver value with our content that helps customers become aware that we're a trusted provider and, you know, someone you can have belief in that ultimately will, you know, help you solve a problem or a need or a want. So now we've often heard and talked about how companies should be more of a media company or have their own media company in-house or become a media company. How does a company go about knowing that they have this area of expertise, whatever their product is. And, you know, when I say go about, I mean, one, how do they approach it? And two, how do marketers sell it up the ladder that you need to create media that may not be 
all about your product, but maybe just interesting to your consumers that will bring them to your product? Yeah, I think there's a, you know, there is a common misconception, I think, that it it, it, is simp- it is as simple as saying, hey, let's make an ad, but let's not make it about ourselves, right? Or <laughs> yeah. let's make an email newsletter, but let's make it about something else. And it's ultimately, it's a different kind of idea. Campaign marketing, by the way, isn't going away, right? I, I'm, I'm a firm believer and lover of advertising and mixed media and direct marketing and, you know, sales enablement and all of the processes that are about persuading customers to become customers. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a big, I'm I'm a marketing fanboy from the very beginning. I've been doing this 30 years. And the key is, is that when you look at it, when you start it, a content marketing program is really built to sit on top of a classic marketing and advertising approach. It's a piece of an integrated marketing and communication strategy. And the way to make it really work is to understand that our goal here is to build, uh, Andrew Davis has a wonderful term for this. He calls it your pre-customer database, right? We Hmm. call it an audience. And how do you build an audience to build affinity at whatever part of that customer's journey you're looking to optimize and build them so that they start to engage with your brand based on content that you're providing. And there's all sorts of good things that happen based on that, right? Maybe it's more leads, maybe it's cheaper leads, maybe it's more loyal customers, maybe it's better brand awareness of your brand. All of those things can be good things that happen out of this process. The key is that we look at our content development as a product. In other words, it's much more resembling a product development methodology than it is a campaign Mm -hmm. development methodology. So looking at that blog, looking at that resource center, looking at that series of white papers, looking at that feature film, looking at that book, looking at all of those things that you're going to produce as products. And as such, you're going to market them as such, you're going to build them as such, and you're going to treat them as such. And that start the benefit of it is it starts building engagement with that pre-customer database, your audience. And you can do a number of things to start to monetize that audience over time. Do you think companies often fall short of trying to create content that's interesting for the audience, but at the same time, really, it's just, it's just a commercial. They throw a story on top of, and then at the very end, you see their logo. And it's, you know, it's, (laughs) I mean, I actually reposted a video the other day from Procter & Gamble. It was an amazing video. Um, and I've full kudos to the video. I love the video. They should have made it. I'm glad they made it. It was great content. My question was that when I finished watching it, was how it was nothing about Procter & Gamble, which was great. It got my attention, which is great. But it was done in such a way, it was just this great piece of media. At the very end, it fades to black, Procter & Gamble. I'm right. thinking, did they just use me to get their logo in front of me? You know, I, I felt <laughs> kind of used. I'm like, they gave me a great piece of content. I'm even going to spread this content. It's so good. It's a great video. But then at the very end, Procter and Gamble. I'm thinking, okay, yeah. was that content marketing or was it a great ad? Where's yeah. that line? Yeah, it's and it's a fuzzy one. I will tell you. You know, um, I, I actually wrote about this a, a, a couple of years ago um, because there's this conflation of what we would call 
branded content, which is great, wonderful, emotional storytelling, but its foundation is to sell you something, right? Is to sell you the yeah. brand or sell you a product. That doesn't mean it can't be great. It doesn't mean it can't be classic. Nike might be the best in the world at this, right? I mean, they are just geniuses at creating powerful, emotional stories that make you want to engage with the Nike brand. Procter & Gamble is another good one. There's some, they've, they've done some amazing work of late. And there's a difference between that and delivering valuable content that is separate and discreet from your brand, almost despite your brand, that actually helps you develop an audience that builds affinity toward your brand because you're the source of it. You just look at something like the difference between what you just talked about and the Lego movie, right? Mm -hmm. If the words Lego weren't ever used, and really they aren't, it you know the idea of the, the word Lego doesn't really appear a lot in the Lego movie other than in the title, mm -hmm. right? They're, they just, it's a story. It's a story about a hero who has to learn to improv, improv and, and work separately from a team and then work together as a team. And it's a beautiful, wonderful, lots of lessons for the kids, exciting, funny adventure story. If it didn't, if it wasn't about Lego, it would still be all of those things. Mm -hmm. That's where you can kind of separate it. If you pull the brand out of it, would it still be as valuable? I, the great example I think of late is I think of this, you know, wonderful campaign, I would call it a series campaign that Heineken did. I think it was last year or a year before where they called it, let's have a beer. And they would bring two people together from very, very opposite backgrounds. You know, one person who's, you know, really against LGBTQ people and then an LGBTQ person and they don't know anything about each other. And then they come in. They have to solve a puzzle, and at the end of it, they solve the puzzle, and they crack open two beers. They just happen to be Heineken, of course, and then they see videos about each other, and then they realize, oh, they actually share this wonderful thing. And at the end, it's kind of a feeling like you said, right? You, you feel a little skeeved out, a little used by it, because all of a sudden, it became about Heineken. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, it, there was a way to do that, to tell that story that had nothing to do with Heineken, and Quite frankly, it could have just been about sharing a beer and that would have mm -hmm. been it. And if you'd left Heineken out of it, it might have actually been more powerful. And mm -hmm. that, I think, is really where we start to draw a line. Now, that's a fuzzy place to be. And I totally get that. But so is marketing. Marketing is a fuzzy place to be. So it's a, it's a hard thing. But the way I typically look at it is, can you remove your brand, your product from the content altogether and have it still have the same amount of value. Like if you remove HubSpot from the concept of inbound marketing, inbound marketing is still valuable. It's a, still, it's a valuable thing to learn. You don't need HubSpot in order to do that. The fact that HubSpot is the one who brings you inbound marketing makes you want to go figure out who the thought leader in this thing is, and you go, oh, it's this company HubSpot? Of course I'm going to go buy my software from them. You know, it's funny you mentioned HubSpot because... I've been called a an automation expert. That's what I've been called. I won't claim it. <laughs> but I will say that some of the first information I got about uh, marketing automation was from HubSpot. You know, yeah. I read their content for years before I considered HubSpot. Um, I ended up buying Pardot at the time. <laughs> but I still read HubSpot. 
Later on, I helped a company buy Marketo, but I still read HubSpot. Yeah. Um, and so now when someone asks me, you know, what marketing automation should I choose? And this is all based on learning from a company, getting content from them, learning from them over the years. I myself, I run my company off of HubSpot. So I'm definitely a fan of HubSpot and I'll speak yeah. highly of HubSpot. And they've given me, first of all, they've always been at the table whenever I work with a corporation to buy marketing automation. HubSpot's always a consideration because I've learned so much from them. And at the same time, um, you know, every, every company's situation is different. And so the marketing automation could be better for HubSpot, better for Marketo, better for Pardot. But my point is that I'll learn from HubSpot and they will always be in my back pocket. I'll always think about them. They'll always be top of mind for marketing automation because they educated over the years. And it wasn't necessarily about HubSpot. It was about marketing automation. So. Yeah, well, that's exactly it, right? I mean, what they have done in you is built what I would call a true fan, right? Mm -hmm. Someone yeah. who knows exactly where that brand belongs. Mm -hmm. And so instead of you bringing them, you know, as a fan, opportunities that either wouldn't be right for them would ultimately churn out or would ultimately not be the right customer for them from a fit perspective you're one, bringing them only customers that are a true fit and that would last. And two, mm -hmm. you're built, you have a trust built with that brand now that you're out there evangelizing who they are right for. So they're mm -hmm. accomplishing two goals by delivering valuable content to you, Lee. They're, 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 they're developing one, a trusted evangelist who's going to be out there talking about them. And that's just invaluable in today's world influencing the marketplace and two for the leads and customers and 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 opportunities that you do bring you they know that those are going to be valuable customers ongoing and they're not going to be ones that churn out i would bet you that if you actually looked at however many customers you may have recommended into hubspot that that has a much higher stickiness a much higher retention rate than those baseline customers, I would bet you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that delta, like if you were saying, well, what's the value of our content marketing at the lead judge level, like at the individual influencer level, just looking at that delta, I'll bet you it's worth tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to them by simply creating a fan in you. And, and that's, that's a good pivot to my next question too, because um, marketing is typically traditionally, I should say, considered a, a cost center. And what we just spoke about was long game marketing, long game. I mean, this is dating back to maybe for me, 2011 or so, 2012, getting content from HubSpot. Um, and this is, here we are 10 years later, I still will evangelize for them if they fit the situation. Now, can they attribute any white paper I read or webinar I went to to the next deal? That'd be very difficult to do. It's a long game. They could say it cost them to educate me over these past 10 years, but I will continue to probably bring them, you know, results as I uh, refer people to them. So you had a book called Killing Marketing, yep. and it talks about turning marketing costs, which is like HubSpot doing all those white papers and webinars that I attended into profit, which they may see five, 10, 15 years later. So do you think marketing leaders are catching on to that concept that 
it, it may take a long time to see that profit? I think that's the biggest challenge, quite frankly, is that, you know, so broadly speaking, we live right now in a very short term, impatient business world, right? Where mm -hmm. public companies are expected to report monthly and quarterly. We set up almost all of our reporting in business and in marketing on a weekly, monthly, quarterly basis. And long-term investments, what we might call value investments into things that will provide long-term value are just difficult. They're just difficult for businesses these days to make um, a true investments in. And mm -hmm. I get that. And it's, you know, it's just, it's a, the, you know, hashtag the struggle is real. Um, but having said that, the key is, is sort of, if you look at the marketing investments we're making as a part of our portfolio, right? Going all the way back to the integrated marketing communications, the marketing mix, as it used to be mm -hmm. called back in the day. And so mm -hmm. you say, what part, that's a portfolio, right? We manage it like any other investment portfolio. And we have some of it going to TV. We got some of it going to print. We got some of it going to digital banner ads. We got some of it going to cold calling sales guys. We got some of it going to content marketing. And you say, great, in that portfolio of the cost, marketing as a cost, what percentage of it is a long-term investment? Campaigns, I would argue, are a short-term day trading investment in marketing where we, we you know, it's, it's invest in a tank of gas, see how far it gets you. Great. Did it get me? Great. Great. I'm, I still got to buy gas though. No matter what the price is, mm. I still got to buy media. I still got to buy fuel for that car. Content is investing in a long-term infrastructure, an owned media infrastructure that builds that audience over time and hopefully provides value. Now, the way it provides value or transforms into a profit center is in two ways. One is it starts to act as a multiplier to all those other classic marketing things you're doing. So for example, all of the first party data that we're gathering from our audience, how can we use that first party data to do things like targeted advertising or personalizing our e-commerce catalog or making our traditional marketing efforts more efficient, helping us save money, real savings of money, and actually drawing in a revenue or a monetized audience into that portfolio. It's an investment that helps us multiply our savings on our traditional marketing benefits. Then if we want to take it to the next level, which is actually investing in something that could itself generate revenue. Red Bull is a great example of this. You know, um, Cleveland Clinic is a great example of this. Cleveland Clinic has a blog called Health Essentials. They've got a whole content team that focuses in on building posters and websites and updating the hours on the Cleveland Clinic website and all of that. But their Health Essentials blog is now so successful that they've got salespeople who sell sponsorships, who sell access to email uh, advertising to traditional other companies who want to get in front of people who are interested in improving their health. And so it's now Health Essentials becomes a branded piece of content, a branded platform that provides them all sorts of the traditional marketing benefits, you know, new patients, new brand, new affinity for their brand, but also pays for itself because it generates revenue. It's actually a profit center for the organization. So I realize that for many companies, that's kind of a, oh my gosh, I'm a bridge too far. But you even look at somebody that we were just talking about, HubSpot, 
and their acquisition of websites and email newsletters, the hustle being the last, the, 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 the last acquisition of that, which happened mm-hmm. just a month or two ago, yeah. that's a paid newsletter. That's a revenue generating newsletter for them right now. Now they can make the decision to go, we're going to make it for free, but they could also just keep the revenue generation aspect of it and keep it generating revenue. And it's a marketing platform for them. So there's a basis there. And in the book, we talk about there are 10 different ways to monetize audiences and we go through that process, but that's generally the two sides. Cost savings by looking at what we can do as a multiplier to traditional marketing and revenue generating from what we could do as actually becoming a media company. Okay. So as a reminder, that book is called Killing Marketing. Look it up. You can learn a lot more about what Robert just went into because I want to make sure you get that value there because that's that's some amazing information right there. Um, I want to take a step in a direction and, and, and reveal a pain that I felt one time, Robert, when I was at one of your sessions. (laughs) Okay. So that's, that's so, a common response to one of my sessions, by the way, is pain. Yeah. Yeah. So to, to set the stage here. So I own a company called content monster and content monster is primarily a content marketing content production company. We do a lot of production. Yeah. Now me, myself, you know, I do strategy and planning and promotion and optimization, all those things around content, but the company was founded based on actual hands-on creation of content, media, podcasts, audio, video, all that kind of stuff, uh, blogs. So I'm, I'm going to pick up my phone here. I've, I kept a picture in a notepad that I see often of a slide <laughs> that you had on your screen. I'm going to try to describe that a bit because my heart sunk when I saw this slide. I got a picture of you uh, actually uh, with, you know, I can't see here, but with, with this slide. So the slide says, smile, you're being commoditized. <laughs> and it's a big U shape, like a smile. And in the top left corner, it has uh, strategy and planning. That's right. And then towards the and towards the bottom, with the more commoditized thing, commoditized things are. You have content creation, which is dead center of what Content Master does. And then in the top right, you have optimization and measurement. That's right. And basically, you're saying that um, you know the low value investments towards the bottom of that swoop. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. I've just positioned my company at what Robert just says is low value investment. I thought, well, good thing they have me to do the strategy planning and optimization. Otherwise, maybe in a funny place. So, Robert, I want to ask you, talk to talk to me and to other agencies. What can marketing agencies do and even solo creators do to avoid being commoditized? Yeah. It's just something that I've observed over the last 20 years, and this is the business I've been in for the last 20 years, which is the agency consulting production side of, of the business, other than my you know, stint as a CMO as a buy, on the buy side of things. Um, you know, I've worked in agencies and I've worked in consultancies, and it's my, almost my entire career has been on the consulting side of the, of the business. And so what I mean in the smile idea is, and I didn't invent the smile graph, by the way, it's one that was done by, I think, Dell back 30 years ago that, that talked about manufacturing um, in, a, in, a similar, in a similar way. But what you have is what do customers value most and what they value most and what, they, what will make you sticky, which will make you l- seem strategic um, is providing strategy and planning, regardless if you if you provide other services. 
Now, you know, if you only provide those bottom at the smile, sort of at the chin level, um, the uh, services such as content production, website assembly, um, photography, you know, production oriented things, you might be Picasso, right? You might be an amazing, you might be Kanye, right? You might be an artist that is truly a genius in producing those things. doesn't matter. The customer will still see you as a production. You are, you are a production. And as soon as you, as soon as you don't deliver what they want, well, you're out of favor. And guess what? You get replaced with the next one and the next one and the next one. And you can think of it in the same way that you see something like Shutterstock, right? The same way that you see any sort of ongoing production. It's only as good as your last gig. And it's only as good as you resonate with whatever customer you're actually providing those production level services to. So you tend to get switched out. You see this all the time with blogging services, right? Where, you know, they provide you with three blog posts per month and, you know, you do that fine until then somebody goes, you know, they're not performing that great. We're switching. And it's mm -hmm. an easy switch, by the way. It's a really easy switch because it's the same commodity that you're producing. It's just more blog posts. Now, yours might be better. It might be demonstrably better, but it doesn't matter. You're still getting switched out. And so the key is, can you market yourself? Can you create yourself to provide the strategy and planning as a project, which is more of a project on the left-hand side of the smile, or a measurement and optimization idea as the process, which is the right-hand side of the smile, or something, and all of the things in between, as much as you want to. Here's the magic. If you offer one of those things at either of the two corners of the smile, going down is child's play, is, is you can do that all day long. In other words, if I come to you and I deliver you a great strategy and a great plan, then if I say, by the way, I'm the guy who can execute it for you, you're going to go, of course you are. And you're going to mm -hmm. be much stickier as a result because I'm the one who developed the strategy and plan for you. If you know, I start I, with I you at the production level of just producing mm -hmm. content, trying to go up the smile is near impossible. Because if I'm just producing assets for you and I come and go, hey, you need a new strategy, you're, you're going to be like, no, you're, you produce blog posts for me. Why, am I, why would I buy strategy for you? That's the idea. Now, that doesn't mean you have to become McKinsey. It just means that you have to actually offer up, even if it's the starting point of your production services, and I know you do this because I know your company <laughs> and I know you, um, which is... Why are you doing this? What do you want out of this? What is your goal out of this? I'm not going to produce one movie for you. I'm not going to produce one podcast for you. I'm going to ask you why you're doing this, what you're doing, so that we can optimize your business outcome and put a plan together for you that makes sense. That plan might be a production plan, but it's yet strategy and planning that is the important part of that, not the actual production of the asset itself, independent of what you're actually talking about. Does that make sense? It, it makes great sense. In fact, after seeing you do that presentation, you know, first my heart sunk. Then I thought, wait a minute, we're doing these things. We're just not messaging it correctly. Because, right. That's usually the case. Yeah. Because we would walk in the door with production and then say, well, by the way, we can do the strategy and optimization too. Not realizing that, well, I mean, even we know you can go to Fiverr and get some things done, but me being a marketer, 
the reason why I started Content Monster was because as a marketer, you want to get so much done, but you only have so many people and minds to think about it. And even if you do go get a piece of content, it's then left in your lap to do something with. And That's right. Content Monster wanted to say, we don't want to just provide a video for you and just drop it in your lap because then you're stuck with this content that might just flop because you had no strategy behind why you created it in the first place. And we realize if we create great content and just give it to someone, this is what I experienced as a marketer. I would get a company to create a piece of content, a video, give it to us. And then it may just sit because we didn't have time <laughs> or strategy or plan behind it. We spent all this money on a piece of content. And so I said, well, you know what? I've been that marketer too many times. I don't want to, I don't want to do business with someone else and make them that marketer that just gets a piece of content and it sits. So, and not, plus I've had to answer to the, to the, to the expense, like, Hey boss, I just spent, you know, 10 grand on the video. He's going to want to know what I did with it. You know, where did it go? How, how did it perform? And what's the ROI on that? So after seeing your presentation, I thought to myself, okay, I got to make sure that I let marketers know that we don't just create the content. We help you execute on it and make an ROI from it and report on it and optimize and strategize. All those things have to be done because that's what needs to be done the most. They need someone to help them think about what to do, not just create it. And so it's, a, it's, a, I want it's to such a, yeah, it's such a great point, you know, and, and I'll tell you this because the first pushback that, um, you know, that I typically will hear is exactly what you just finished with, which is when the customer goes, well, that's not why I'm hiring you, right? In other words, it's not always our fault, right? In many cases, yeah. the customer doesn't realize they need the strategy. They just go, oh yeah, I'm good with the strategy. I just need somebody to produce a bunch of stuff for me. You know, I had one friend of mine who interviewed for a social media job. And the first thing they said to him was, what would you do on day one? And he said, well, I would start to formulate a social media strategy for all the different channels. And they went, no, 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 no. We don't have time for that. We just need you to produce a bunch of posts. Well, needless to say, he didn't get hired, right? It's mm. it, There is a lot of demand side challenge with this as well from CMOs, VPs, directors, marketing managers up and down the line who go, we don't need, we don't have time for strategy. We just need to produce and produce and produce. Well, that we know is wrong. It's just wrong headed. So what we have to do is when we offer it up, when we message it, we think about it and we say, listen, I know you want production. I know you want content. I know you want these things, but we can't deliver our best work for you unless we know why and how and where and what we're actually producing. We need to know the strategy. So as part of our production methodology, we actually do a short strategy assessment of what you need to do and where you need to do it, or we provide measurement and optimization on the backside of it, what, you know, or both. And if even if you have to give that away, which I don't recommend, by the way, but even if you have to give that away, it positions you in the mind of the consumer as much more than just a commodity producing production house. It positions you as a trusted advisor you know why and what they're doing, even if they don't agree with what and why you're doing it. But that yeah. is a different mindset for them and they will value you differently as a result. You know, everyone loves to get a good quote from a, from a client. And one that really stuck with me and made me feel like I finally achieved what you were showing in that presentation was the client said, you know what? We're going to go with you guys because you're marketers. Not exactly. because you produce great podcasts, exactly. not because you create great videos. 
we're going to go with you because you're marketers. And I was like, I love that. That was a trophy. You know, it wasn't because of the content because we're marketers and we, we knew the, the full story. So now future, where are we going with this marketing thing? I mean, content marketing has definitely evolved. We've got new jobs, new businesses have evolved from it. Companies are finally learning, learning how to be a little bit more personal and how to tell the story. They're, they're getting there. Uh, there's a lot of stumbles, especially in the, the era of in these troubling times. We've had <laughs> that kind of content we've had the past year. Every content failed to me started with in these troubling times. We're, we're yeah. here with you and we're in it together. So b- beyond that, where do you see content marketing going in the next few years? Well, you know, there are two overwhelming drivers, I think, coming out of these troubling times. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, they're related to all the things that we went through and were accelerated. Um, some of them, thankfully so. You know, there was a lot of horrific things that happened in 2020 that, quite frankly, accelerated change that we needed. Um, and that's everything from COVID to George Floyd to the, you know, the, the rising awareness of things like Black Lives Matter and, and all of those kinds of things that are affecting the way that we do business today. And, you know, in, in many ways, it's really sad that we had to go through that change. But in many ways, I think we're going to be better off because of it. And, and I think the two things that I see happening that are related to those things are, one, the increasing importance of digital, right? That's just a direct relation of COVID, which is in a world where physical presence just isn't as necessary or, quite frankly, desired any longer, digital experiences have to act as a proxy for our brand in increasing ways, right? So that's telling all those great stories, creating all those great experiences, creating all of that value that we can create through digital content is just going to become much more important for us as brands. And you can see this happening in, you know, B2C with the direct to consumer movement and, you know, and all of the different ways that e-commerce is, is really driving things. You can see it happening in B2B where, you know, the lack of conferences and the lack of presence with salespeople and, and in-person events is forcing people to develop much more robust thought leadership experiences on online and how much of the buyer's journey is online these days. And then I think the second piece, which isn't, I, I mean, it's well covered, but it's not being as highlighted as much, is this driver of brand purpose and trust, um, which is we are really as consumers, and a lot of this is driven by young people, and I don't typically use the M word, but but just young people, young people who will uh, end up, you know, really driving and managing our world, are much more uh, aligned with brands that have purpose to them and that express that purpose and that take advantage of and responsibility for that purpose and tell those stories and get behind what they're doing in a way that is just much more transparent, much more authentic, and much more real than brands in the past. And I think in many ways that drives a need for value-oriented storytelling that helps us express our values and really expose those values to our audiences so that they know that they should and can and will align with us. And we're starting to see that more and more with brands that emerge, with micro brands that are emerging, 
um, as you know, as as challengers to some of the existing sort of classic brands. Those two trends, I think, are the future. Those, you know, and so, you know, it's cliche for me to say the future belongs to storytellers, but but you know, and in many ways, that's a little you know Pollyanna and trite. I get it, but what I mean by that is is that I think in the you know in the way that. I see the future of marketing going. It's digital storytelling, creating value through experiences. And whether you call that content marketing or not, I kind of don't care because to me, that's what makes marketing most interesting is when we're delivering valuable things to people that they care about. That phrase stuck with me, value-oriented storytelling. I want to say that again, value-oriented storytelling. Yeah. I love that. That that summarizes your summary. That's that's. I hope that's <laughs> well, where we're good. going. You can have that if you like it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's where we're going. I love that because that that summarizes so much of, you know, content is always supposed to be value. Storytelling is working, but value oriented storytelling is definitely. I, I hope it goes that way. That, that's wonderful. I do too. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, look, we got a lot of we got a lot of weirdness going on right now, right? I mean. And, you know, there are a lot of things that can disrupt that kind of evolution. Um, and, you know, and I think it's, it's, you know, there's, you know, I, I mentioned this on a podcast I was on, uh, which is my own, of course, um, a couple of weeks ago where, you know, there's that sort of classic, uh, you know, which has become almost a cliche itself at this point, which is, you know, marketers ruin everything. Um, and, you know, that we can't have nice things, you know, like new social media networks, new experiences, because marketers will come in and, and, and ruin it. And Clubhouse is certainly going through this kind of uh, experience right now. And so what I hope is, is that marketers will step up, right? Is that, is that we don't live up to that reputation, that we actually can change and actually, you know, move toward things that some people that are way more cynical than I would say are impossible that, you know, it's not up to marketers to save local newspapers and it's not up to marketers to do value oriented storytelling because quite frankly, they're the, the, you know, it's just not up to brands to do that. I think it's not only up to us. I think it's not only our opportunity to drive more value with consumers. I dare say it's a responsibility. I think it's marketing's responsibility these days to step up to the plate and do that work regardless of, you know, sort of what you think of marketing as a, you know, with a cynical eye. Well said, well said. Well, we're going to have to wrap this up, Robert. We, you and I can talk <laughs> for sorry hours. sorry about that, my friend. Uh, I tend to go uh, off a little bit when it gets to that stuff. Uh, oh, no, no, that that is value-oriented podcasting. So <laughs> I, I, re- <laughs> I appreciate that. That's yeah, the when we get together, right it's definitely value, <laughs> the VOP, it's value-oriented podcast. That's what we're trying to do here. So, you know, I, I always enjoy learning from you, Robert. So tell everybody else how they can find you. I know you got a new podcast. Tell us about that and how we can find you. Yeah, well, it's a new old podcast is what it is. It's um, the podcast that Joe and I have been doing for coming on eight years now. And we took a little bit of a hiatus for a year when Joe went off and, I don't know, found himself or whatever the heck he did. Um, but um, we're back now and we're back to weekly um, so we're excited about that. And it's just, you know, two chuckleheads talking about the news and, you know, arguing over NFTs and clubhouse and social audio and marketing and media and all that kind of stuff. And we're having a grand time doing it. It's called This Old Marketing is the name of the podcast. 
And then my little home on the web, my little hovel is uh, uh, contentadvisory.net. All right, great. Be sure to check out Robert in those two places. Check out his, the podcast. You'll continue just like I do to learn and learn and learn from these guys. I really appreciate you, Robert. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Business of Marketing podcast, a show brought to you by ContentMonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on ContentMonster.com as well as aleejudge.com. To continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.